We're back from It Starts Now, the happy hour of finance and business. My name is Stanley. My guest today is a global expert in talent retention, a chief strategist, a global speaker, um, an author. By the way, I, be, I started reading the book and it's really good. And he's here to talk about uh, so many things, the personal CEO, the power of influence thinking, you name it, we're going to dive into it. So please welcome um, Dr. Troy Hall. Well, thank you, Stanley. It's good to be there. Thank you for showing up. We really appreciate it, man. As we concluded earlier with our brief conversation, one of the things I was sharing with Dr. Hall was that uh, I was doing the research and I found so many amazing gems and so many uh, values that I could take in that I had a whole list of questions. And I was like, wait, we may not have enough time for all of this. And so, But I'm glad you took the time. And, and let me tell you why I'm, I'm also super excited about is because when we talk about startups, XO companies, um, legacy brands, uh, we always talk about bringing the right people on board, the right team on board. But we seldomly, we really dive in on the leadership role and what it plays in business. And once you have uh, the talent, how do you keep that talent within? Um, I don't know if you want to dive in and sure. share some of that detail. Well, sure. I mean, well, first of all, thank you for all those great accolades and comments and affirmation. My mother used to say that you will never have to worry about being misquoted when you speak words of affirmation. So I certainly do appreciate all of that. And and gosh, I you know, it's almost like when someone says something nice about you, you want to go, oh, no, no, stop. No, come on. Keep it going. Keep it going. I noticed that, you know, your mother had a great impact on you because you quote her a lot. I do. And uh, uh, and actually, the third book that I uh, have written that will be uh, launched in May of this year is a tribute to my mother's legacy. So we'll get to some of that uh, as I'm sure we go through and uh, uh, we'll kind of talk about that. But let's talk about, first of all, leadership and uh, and why that's important uh, in what we're doing. So all of the work that I do with organizations around the globe is built upon the premise of the cohesion culture, proven principles to retain your top talent. So that book fundamentally just really creates a good grounding uh, board for what you need. The first, it's written into three acts. The first act is be a leader. Second act is build the culture. And the third act is bring it to life. And a cohesion culture is a work environment where people have a sense of belonging, are valued, and share in mutual commitments. Now, Here's the really cool thing. It's so popular today to talk about belonging and value and shared mutual commitments. But when I was writing the book, that wasn't what was the popular mainstream. So it's just interesting for me to see the evolution as to the future of where we thought things would be going. And uh, my my PhD is in global leadership and entrepreneurship. And my dissertation was in the study of group dynamics with cohesion. So naturally became became part of it. And so that's why I, so I speak to leaders about the strategic framework of belonging, value, mutual commitment. And then I talk to them as a leader to say, how do you prepare yourself to lead in this culture? How do you prepare yourself to have a cohesive team? What are the things you need? So one of the things I start with are seven attributes of an effective leader of cohesion. And not that we'll have enough time to train on all of that today, but just to give you a hint at what they what they are. The first is teachable. The second is compassion. 
grace, truth, humility, purity, peacemaking. So those are the seven attributes of an effective leader of cohesion. And I start with teachability. And so if we just get through that one today, it'll help us because to teach means that your mind is open to new ideas and new information. You haven't made yourself like, I know so much that I have no room for anyone else to be a part of me. If you're teachable, the likelihood is that you're already humble because you've already said, oh, I, I can't get it all done by myself. I need help, which is a great thing for leaders. And it's the number one mistake that most leaders make is thinking that they have to do it all by themselves or that they have to be smarter than the people that are around them. Really right. good leaders surround themselves with very talented and smart people, and they find a way to facilitate the combination of all of their skills, all of their talents together, and really be more of a master of the facilitation of it than it is to try to be the master of all the information. So here we go with a mom quote. Are you ready? So my mom's I'm ready. This is my mom was nicknamed Fanny, and so the book is Fanny Rules: Nine Less Nine Lessons Behind the Making of a Leader. So. Fanny used to say to me, she would say, Troy, it would be much better for you to be a Mr. Learn-It-All than a Mr. Know-It-All. Exactly. And really set a nice foundation for being teachable. Peter Stenge's work in the 1990s talked about a learning organization. And one of the elements of a learning organization was to uh, be able to celebrate diversity. But he wasn't necessarily talking at that time about diversity, equity, and inclusion, the current conversation. He was talking about diversity of thought, is that are you able to take other people's ideas and learn from them? Can you include other people's ideas? And why this also is so important for a leader is because when a leader is teachable, then they don't fall into this trap, the trap of culture superiority. When a leader believes that what they're doing, that what they're saying, what they believe, is superior to everyone else, they are adopting the behaviors of cultural superiority, which is called ethnocentric thinking. Mm -hmm. The real opportunity is for a teachable leader is to adopt collect cultural relativism, which means that the leader will evaluate what goes on in a culture based on the context of the culture, not based against what that individual's culture is. So you are able to accept the customs, the traditions, the rituals, the practices, the symbols, the stories, all those things. You can now embrace them because you have been teachable. Um, so an example I'll give you is um, I had an opportunity when I was in Japan to really understand a little bit more about Shinto principles. And the Shinto principle is the individual's by the way, it's not a religion. That was the first thing. It was like, oh my gosh, that was mind-blowing because I always thought it was a religion, much like Buddhism and some of the others. It's, it's not. Hmm. It's a practice. It's a principle. So individuals who um, will sometimes speak to the universe and they'll talk about an egg. Egg is very important in Shinto because it's the beginning of life. And right. so you might find in people's homes in Japan uh, stone carvings of an egg. And there will be times when they'll meditate. They may place their hand and get the warmth of the stone or whatever connection they're having to the stone. They'll meditate. So you kind of think, well, they're praying to the God of the egg. 
but they're not. What they're doing is releasing the power that the egg has in creation into the universe through their meditation. And so it's just a, it's a principle. And it's, it's like, that's just one small example that I can give you of some of the things that I have learned and, and have been able to understand and accept that there was a cultural uh, phenomenon. There was something that happened in the culture that allowed that particular ideal to come forward or that concept to come forward. And just to have access to it really opens my mind to then being able to think about, well, what are other things that happen that I've taken for granted or I've somehow imposed my own value system on top of it and I've completely lost the context. I've lost the perspective of what it is. And that's what happens with leaders when they lose sight of perception, when they don't understand the orientation of what was intended, then they're not aligned in their in their perspective. Their perspective is, is skewed based on their perception. So when you hear people talk about their perception is your reality, I go, okay, that could be all right if you just let it go. But guess what? You have an opportunity to reshift that perception mm-hmm. so that you can bring it into perspective so that you're now in aligned with orientation. Uh, can I ask you a question? Because uh, I hear that a lot. And one of the things that I come to realize is, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, uh, when people say, you know, reality is ba- or perception is reality, but it's also based on your perception, right? It's your reality that you're putting out there. So if somebody was to be raised um, with a pessimistic view, then overall, they're going to think everybody's negative. Right. And if somebody was raised in a positive with a positive out- outlook, then they're always they're going to have this mindset of saying, OK, I- I'm going to get benefit of the doubt because I believe in uh, um, this person. I believe in this. I believe in, in, in the value that the person is bringing. So they have a better outlook. So when when I hear that people say, you know, perception is reality is but whose reality based on whose perception? That's right. So the orient so the opportunity is then for the two individuals to try to agree on some level of orientation to realign their perception so that they can operate from the same perspective. And it, it really boils down to um, to understanding like how people's behaviors come about. They start with core values. So the value of the individual and what the individual's value systems are. How do they treat honesty? How do they treat teamwork? How do they treat sharing the vision? How do they treat um, you know, levels of integrity, communication, whatever the value is, the values then support the person's belief system. I believe this based on that. So if you believe that a particular doctrine, a particular book, a particular uh, piece of information serves as your truth, then you base all of your beliefs on that value system that's reflective of that of that truth. So that's your I have belief. A question now. And then, and then your beliefs, and before yeah, I'll finish this part, then we'll mm-hmm. your question. So your so you have your values and your beliefs. Your beliefs then lead way to your attitudes, how you perceive and see things. Right. And all three of those create your behaviors that actually show up for other people. So now your question. Yeah, because it, it, you, you you touch a, a nerve with me, right? And and I like it. The, the thing I want to know is like when we go into companies, one of the things that they they uh, verbalize is uh, uh, employee engagement, people engagement, right? Yeah. And but the action and the message is more of a performance environment. 
they they say people engagement, but it's more the message is always performative value. Like if you're not performing well, that's it, you're gone, right? Right. Now, why do you think most companies or most uh, leaders miss out on an opportunity to install that value system that you say, where it's a equal equal balance between employee engagement and performance, where the message is shared equally and and received that makes people want to stay there? Uh, much of it is old habits. Uh, it is the fact that the that they have not indoctrinated themselves into a, a new possibility. Uh, so, and there's lots of ways we can unpack that. So, why um, why I focus on the cohesion elements of belonging, value, and mutual commitment? It's because it pro- provides a foundation for the leader in the interaction that the leader has with people. Oftentimes. As you, as you said, kind of in this way, that organizations say that employees are their greatest asset, yet they don't take the actions that actually support that. They do something completely different. Correct. So if you've built a cohesive team, because if you talk about belonging, the whole concept of belonging is not that people fit in, but that people feel that they're a part of something special. They're involved in something that's even greater than what they, they are or who they even think that they could be. So if you're going to have true belonging, then you have that. And guess, and the good news is that we're designed as humans to belong. We want to cohabitate with other people. We want to communicate. Now there's, there's anomalies along the way, but I'm not going to deal with those. Those are what we call outliers. But for the most part, individuals want to connect like you and me. We want to connect. You want to connect with the people who are listening to the uh, podcast. I want to connect to the people. So we have that. So if you have a sense of belonging and you're treating people in a way that you want them to be a part of something, like when you welcome in, into your home, then those characteristics are what you have. That really then then supports the well-being of the employee. And the value that is created in this cohesive culture is one that not only respects the individual and creates trust, but it also explains that what they do is, has, is meaning. It has meaningful work. Mm-hmm. It's like what I do matters. I mean, people may want to people. Some people have to get a job to make money, but everyone wants to do a job that matters. Right. So the idea is, is that can you create that environment where individuals know that the contributions that they are making not only make a difference to them personally, but how do they contribute to the team and then bigger to the organization, which then may also go outwards to the consumer? How does all, all of that work? And when the leader is operating in those ways. Then the operators, then the, then the leader is also forming what we call shared mutual commitments. And the shared mutual commitment starts this way. And this is where the leaders get it backwards. They think that because they have wooed the individual to come, they have um, offered them a salary, given them an office, given them tools, that that individual now is, you know, you, you got to now do everything for the company. But they're right. still missing peaks. And that is, what is the leader doing for the individual to commit to them that they matter? Are they focusing on advancement, growth, and development? Do they even build that into the onboarding experience? 63% of all employees are seeking some form of advancement, growth, and development. And if you don't provide that in your organization, no matter how much money you spent getting them, then they're going to leave to find it because they want it. It's not that they all want titles. It's not that everybody wants to be the CEO, but they want to know that their future has a growth opportunity or an advancement opportunity. And so you need to make sure that you factor that in. 
If you don't do that, then you don't get the reciprocal in, um, in return where the employee is really committing. So all of this, what does it boil down to? It boils down to what I call the cohesion phenomenon. The cohesion phenomenon says that when cohesion is present in an environment, then you get performance. But that performance is at the level of engagement that you thought you were getting from the very beginning or the engagement that you wanted from the beginning. So although it is performance-based in the sense that people are performing, they're now performing because it's the right thing to do. It's because they want to do it, because what they do matters, not because someone applied some institutional power that said you better do it or else. Mm -hmm. So that's how all of that wraps together to get the level of engagement. And when you're focusing on that level of engagement and you get the performance, you don't have to focus on the performance. It's going to happen automatically because it's a causal effect. So I'm going to help you out here in a couple of things. So number one, I want you to help me on, help us unpack this. So correlational data versus causal. Correlational data is when you have two elements and you get a statistical probability that they relate to each other or they don't. So we're going to talk about correlational data versus causal. So let's start with rainy days and umbrellas. So you've experienced a rainy day. And on a rainy day, have you ever opened an umbrella on a rainy day? Yes. Good. Have you ever not opened an umbrella on a rainy day? No. Okay, so every rainy day you open an umbrella. Unless there's too much sun outside and, you know. Okay, so therefore not every time that it rains you open an umbrella. True. Because there are individuals who just wear a coat or put something over their head and they run it out. Now, do you go to the beach? Yes. Okay. Have you ever put an umbrella in the sand? Yes, I have. <laughs> yes, I have. And it wasn't raining, right? It was to cover, it right. was to protect you from the sun, protect right? Protect the okay. sun, correct. Right. So I can tell you, I can, I can uh, share with you that there is a high statistical probability that rainy days and umbrellas are correlated, that rainy day, the umbrellas will open. Right. But rainy days don't cause umbrellas to open because you just in this conversation said, I open an umbrella on a, on a sunny day. I sometimes don't even open an umbrella. But with cohesion, it's causal. If you have cohesion present in your organization, if you have that in your culture, you get performance. It happens. It's already it's studied. It's proven. It's like it's there. Individuals will perform if they belong, have value, and have shared mutual commitments. If they get to that spot, then they perform. And they perform in all stages of your group, whether your group is just forming, whether your group has been together for five years, whether your group has, is a mature group that's been together for 10 or 20, it doesn't matter. All stages of the group, you perform when you have that. And the level of performance that you get is the level of engagement that you look for. That's, that's I'm digesting it all in right now, but that's... <laughs> That sums it up, really. But uh, okay, so now, how do you remove some of the blind spots that the leaders have? Because you you got to understand, as a leader, you get sixty um, sixty sixty to sixty five percent of the time you're getting a lot of fluff, right? Uh, because you're you're not on the daily day operation, you're not you know overseeing too many things, and as a CEO, you barely you you, you know you're not really around as much as you would like, because you, you, you're focusing on other things. So how do you get rid of some of that, um, remove that blind spot, get rid of some of that fluff to keep that value system 
in place? Well, there's no really secret sauce or no magic to it. So I know that will be a little disappointing, but it really boils down to will. It's will versus skill. So you can be skilled in all the technical aspects of running a company and knowing how to a balance sheet works and and you know all the ins and outs of of mergers and acquisitions and all those fancy complex terms but if you don't have the will to want to work with people and to make sure that you realize that it's people who get things done and not things who get things done then your blind spots are going to remain there's it's no you know it would be nice if you could just go whack people up the side of the head and go get rid of that blind spot or if you could spray a little something on them you know and wipe it off you know oh that's your i don't know what about that blind spot <laughs> It's not going to happen, right? Right, right. Want to do it? That's why I start with Teachable. So, if the CEO and and leaders of the company and they adopt a Teachable concept, then they will be able to have more power over their blind spots because they're already willing to accept new information. They've already said, "I will. I want the. I'm willing to do this. It's not just the, am I capable of it, but I'm willing to do it." And right. When you're willing to do it, it means that your belief system is engaged. And here's the other really great news for us: when our belief system is engaged in something, like we believe something, like like to the ends of the earth, we believe it. Absolutely. We actually accomplish things that we would not normally have accomplished had we didn't, if we hadn't believed it. So again, part of this is is you know up to the leader. To be able to do it, it's one of the reasons why I work on helping organizations get these cohesion cultures in place, so that they can be teachable. They can start to look through these attributes. They can they they can begin to see how it works. And one of the things that I created is a program called Cohesion Culture Camp. And uh, Cohesion Culture Camp is for leaders. It's for individuals all individuals in an organization, because first of all, the premise is everyone's a leader. If you're answering questions, giving direction, helping someone out, uh, offering advice, whatever, anything like that, you're a leader. So in an organization, this Cohesion Culture Camp, uh, course one is be a leader. And in this course, it's an online program. It operates under a, a DIY program. So you can go online, take the course yourself. Um, if you want uh, coaching, then you can speak to a coach, uh, a camp coach, and talk with them about that. Um, or if in an organization, I've got a couple of clients who are having their employees run through the DIY program, and then we're supplementing um, online virtual classes uh, so they can have the dialogue because that's where in training some of the real um, – that's where the real self-discovery occurs is when people start talking about it, right? Like that's where the meat and potato. Yeah. If we just read this information, if you know, we just read it, we'd be like, yeah, I can't ask any questions. You know, it's very one-sided. But when you have a conversation like we're having, ask questions, give answers, it's dynamic. And that's what you do. So this Cohesion Culture Camp is a program that we put out. And it's very easy for companies to, um, to uh, continue to offer it with very little... Um, instruction from a train the trainer because the training guide tells you everything if you were the leader go through the program you then can get the coach's guide and you can actually then coach the individuals as they're going through the program so it's five week five week program is called cohesion culture camp and um, that's amazing yeah it's, you know why cool. it's, it's so amazing because i'm a firm believer of uh, the feedback loop all right uh and 
the faster, the better. Whether it's negative or positive, the quicker it comes in, the, the more you can iterate and get better, right? Yes. And when you have um, just a group of people that can share all the and give back feedback, you know, then you have an opportunity to make some corrections. And then, you know, the, one, one of the best things you could do is, is have a course correction, right? And yeah. sometimes it, it happens through multiple outlets. So if someone's sharing this, that one's sharing that, then, you know, you do the iteration and then you just get better. So I think what you got going on is extremely uh, important. And it, I know it's going to add value because um, just the, the, the deep discussions make you just think deeper. It just may put you in a different zone. Exactly. And I appreciate the fact that you mentioned you're reading the book. And so, you know, as you get further into it, if you want to ask questions, you know my number, just reach out to me and Oh, oh, absolutely. I, I, cause the more, like I said earlier, um, the more I was <laughs> gaining all this information, I was like, wow. Okay. What I want to know, what I want to know. So what I did was, um, I ordered it real quickly from Amazon and I uh, started, you know, having my little cliff notes. I was going through, <laughs> but you know, I, I got it at the last minute because uh, I knew we were going to have the discussion. And as I was doing the information, I said, oh, I, I think this book will be very helpful. So by the time it get here, by the time it got here already, um, I was scheming, skimming through the pages. So I'm definitely going to go back and sit down and uh, really study this book. I think it's going to definitely add some value to it. Well, great. Uh, yeah, great. I, I definitely think so. So now let, let's, let's go into, because um, you mentioned something about being a transformative a leader. All right. Uh, can, you want to give some clarity on that? Sure. So a, a leader of transformation is, first of all, a leader who focuses on uh, on others. So that's the whole concept is, is that they're going to transform. So there's a need possibly for a change, but they're going to focus on others with that change. And so um, so four specific transformative principles uh, that are very effective for those uh, leaders who or believe in that particular way or adopt the behaviors for that is the first thing is they aspire and teach vision. The second is they're a good social architect. The third, they create a trusted environment. And the fourth element is they practice self-regard or being self-aware of themselves. So we'll start with the first one, which is aspire and teach vision. Now you're going to say, when you first think of that, you go like, well, don't all leaders have vision? You know, to kind of be that, doesn't that kind of come with the territory? It's sort of like, come on, Troy, give me something new here, you know? <laughs> so with the vision, the difference in transformation versus other types of leaders is that a transformative leader uh, will train the vision so that the individual can carry it out even when the individual is no longer there. So the vision isn't just what the leader says that's val valuable for the leader. The leader has painted a vision that's valuable for the many. So it's one of those times when the, the leader is really focusing on not only the individual person, but also the individual collective group that actually forms that, that team and they teach the vision. The other key word I said was aspire. Often we think of inspiring, which is getting someone, you know, to something, you know, we're maybe motivating or stimulating, we're inspiring them. But to aspire is to move toward a desired goal or to a desired place. So the opportunity here is for the leader to aspire people or to create the aspirations of the vision 
it to be a place where people want to go. And as long as that vision doesn't harm the individual, then it can it conforms with the concept of being transformative. And the social architect is just getting along with people, figuring out how do you do that? And what is your level of emotional intelligence that allows you to, to interact with people and do a good job? Uh, Daniel Goleman, who wrote um, the whole concept about emotional intelligence and popularized it, he often refers to Abraham Lincoln and Ronald Reagan as two leaders who had high emotional intelligence. They were great at being able to work with people and to get people to do things. They had um, they have applied a persuasive power or an influential power not an institutional power. So in their social architect, they don't get people to do things because they assert power to control them. They try to help people do things because it's the right thing to do. Um, one of the examples of that is uh, Nehemiah. So we can go back in history, Nehemiah. Mm -hmm. Nehemiah was chose to, to create a vision to repair the wall of Jerusalem. And so he had a very specific vision and what he aspired each of the individual families to do was to take care of the of the this part of the wall that was part of their um, their property. So they only had to build, they only had to do their part and just connect it to the person to the left and the right. And so it was a very simple vision. He taught them how to do it. He he had them aspire to the greater vision, which was the, this wall is going to protect our city. We need to get it this in place. And it worked great. And had he have not been a transformative leader, then when he was away with the king trying to secure resources or get the king to provide protection or whatever conversation he was having, then all work would have stopped if he had been the type of leader that would have dictated the work to be done and applied some sort of power of control. But instead, what he did was he created the values, he ignited their belief, he painted a positive response and then said, those are the behaviors you need to do, do them. And, and people did them. He created a, a trusted environment and, and transformational leaders create a trusted environment, meaning that you're safe in your conversations you can have with someone. If, if you come to me as a leader and I turn around and tell three or four other people what you said when you came to me, I don't think I've created a very good trusted environment. Absolutely. Yeah. And if I act erratically in my behavior, like some like, you know, you sometimes go, well, this is a bad day for the boss or this is a good day for the boss. And you're all over the place. You don't create a trusted environment because people don't know where to be. Here's the biggest problem with that. When people are concerned with their safety and security and protection, they can't self-actualize meaning they won't move to a higher spot of performance. They won't move to a higher spot of, of achievement or attainment of whatever it is, whether it's personal goal, community goal, uh, individual team goal, or, or corporate goal. They, they can't get there because they get really stuck in the, the minutia. They get stuck in the, I, I need to protect this situation. And so therefore, they're not as, for, they're not as forthcoming as they would be in this environment where there's trust. Right. And the last is self-regard and self-awareness. And this, I, I say this, when a leader has to keep apologizing for the action they take, or if the leader fails to apologize for the action they take, shame on the leader. Because the followers should not have to be saying to them, um, excuse me, sir, but that was rude. Uh, excuse me, sir, but, or ma'am, you shouldn't have done that. Right. Right? You as a leader should practice that. You should know. You should have more awareness about what you're doing and what you're saying, uh, have kind of that leadership out of body experience. 
So mm -hmm. if you can adopt those four elements, then you have an opportunity to be transformative. Yeah, but, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, and then the other thing I was going to say on that is, I'll give you another piece of Fanny's advice. Fanny's <laughs> advice told me this. She says, character is defined by choices, not circumstance. Yeah, the choices you make define your character. Just because I hung out with a certain person or a certain group and they did bad things didn't give me permission. Right. Why making that choice myself? She said the only time that you get a buy on that, she said if somebody is holding you hostage, someone has a gun to you, someone is, is inflicting harm or something, then your right to survival will, will kick in. That's a whole nother topic. But for, for most of us, we already have a conscience that tells us right for wrong. We didn't need somebody to remind us we were wrong. We didn't need somebody to remind us we were lying. We didn't need somebody to remind us we were cheating, stealing, and not doing the right thing. We know when we're not doing the right thing, and what we do is hope that we get caught, that we, that we don't get caught. And then when we do get caught, you have to ask yourself, are you apologizing because you got caught or because you're remorseful? Right. Yeah. And there was a... There was a um... I don't know if it was a quote, but uh, there was it was something that was shared with me where they said that um, even when you when you cheat on an exam or when you cheat on life or whatever it is, um, people may not know, but you know, you know, and you cheating yourself. Yes. Yeah. So I, I like what you said, and I, I just want to echo something earlier uh, when you were talking about you know being a transformative leader. Even when the vision, you know, because sometimes you have to pivot and you have to go in a different direction. And one thing I, I totally 100% agree with you is that when everyone is in line, right, everyone's aligned and they believe in the, in, in the leader, or they believe in the direction that the, the organization is going as a unit. Even when you pivot and make another direction, everybody follows suit. Yeah. Right. There's no second guessing. There's no. Uh, disruption to whatever rhythm that they got going on is okay. This is what we're gonna do. We're gonna shift. Okay, boom, and then everybody's all it still remain in line. And so I just wanted to echo that because you're hundred percent right. And I, 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 when you have such loyal base, right, because they believe in you or they believe in what you got going on, then you know sometimes you have to pivot but everybody's going to be okay with it they're going to be like all right yes we're gonna we're gonna trust you and then we're gonna continue exactly yeah it's no, no, it's that's great man so uh, the next thing i want to touch on is um uh influence thinking okay uh you want to dive into that sure so influence thinking is a concept that i created that basically has three primary elements the first is the mindset of the leader. The second is the trusted voice or the wise counsel that the leader listens to. And then the third are the actions that the leader takes. Because what is filled inside your mind and how you think inside with all of the complexities of that is what determines what you say and then what you do. And so the first thing is if you only, if you focus on negative, the negative is what you get. So in this concept of mindset, one of the principles that, that I talk about is that the truth is in the I am, not the someday I will be. So in your mind, you claim the I am. I am a good leader. 
I am this person. I am whatever it is, a good artist. I am whatever it happens to be, a father, or what, uh, aunt, an uncle, a daughter, mother, doesn't matter. Whatever you want to claim, you claim in the present tense. Mm -hmm. And the reason that you do that is because there's power in your speaking. There's power in the positivity of you claiming it today because the only way you get to the future is from today. You don't get to the future from yesterday. You get to the future from today. And so combined with that is another uh, fundamental teaching. And that is you cannot be a victor of your future if you're held captive by your past. Mm -hmm. If your, your past can hold you back. The past should be reflective. It gives you a foundation. It says, okay, this is where I came from. Okay, I get that. But if you start making all of your future decisions only on what you have done in the past, you're not going to get much of a different future than what you had in the past. Now, if you like that and that's what you want to do, then fine. Go ahead and go ahead and do it. But don't sit around and whine and complain that that's what you want to do. Because the reality is, is that rig, uh, to go beyond mediocre, it requires rigor. And most people settle for, for mediocre and mediocre goes to the bottom and then complains about the view. <laughs> I like that. Repeat that one again, huh? That's yes, please. please. Yeah, really, mediocre seeks to the mediocre and it settles to the bottom and then complains about the view. Wow. And so so why you so you don't want to be mediocre, which is medium, it's kind of like lukewarm. Spit the lukewarm out. Be hot, be cold, be something, be there, be on those spectrums and move forward. So your mind really has, as a leader, you've got to be clear on these things. You can't be wishy-washy on them. And you have to set standards for yourself. You have to set these attributes that I'm going to follow. And so what you put inside your mind makes a difference because the point of leadership is to motivate, influence, and enable others to achieve success. To influence is to mold thinking. So as a leader, my opportunity in working with you or with others is to mold the thinking of individuals to have this positive sort of view and outlook. You know, the other thing in claiming the I am, why that's also so important is because you live up to your expectations. So if you say one day I'm going to be this magnanimous person, you're never going to get there because your one day is always going to be, your someday is always going to be these many steps ahead of you. But if you have said, I am, and understand you're still a work in progress, because if the, the pursuit is about performance, not perfection, it's not about being perfect today to claim it. It's about moving yourself forward. So this influence thinking, and it's cultural. Sometimes there's cultural influences to what it, how your mind reacts. For instance, when I was in De La Salle University in Manila, and I taught a leadership program to the students that were there, the one question I asked them is, how many of you think that you are a leader? And it was like crickets. Nobody raised their hand. When I asked that same question when I teach in the United States or in the United Kingdom, and I ask that question, invariably, most of the class raises their hand and says, I am, I am a leader. And the difference is, is how they think. So in the Asian group, when we were talking with those students, they said that there was a protocol they had to follow before they felt they could claim to be a leader. They felt like there was a certification. There were certain things they needed to learn that they didn't want to claim that title and not be worthy of it. That's a cultural perspective. 
in the US, the United Kingdom, because both of those, unlike the Asian culture, which is, which is a little bit more collective in the way it thinks, mm-hmm. the US and the United Kingdom are both individualistic cultures. It's me, me, me. And the United States is the largest individualistic culture. So when I ask to be a leader, people go, yeah, I'm a leader. I got it. You know, they're, they're all ready for it. Right. It's a work in progress. But it's, it's, so there is another example of mindset, the influence of culture into the mindset and the difference. Does that mean that the Asian group is wrong or that the group in the United States was right? No, it, it means that both of them were right based on the cultural context of the way they were brought up. Now, is, can there be an enlightenment to the Asian group to be able to say, you can be that leader, visualize to be that leader. If you don't want to claim it, visualize to be that leader, because then your actions will be correlate to the goals that you want. And the same thing happens for in the, in the U.S. You don't, be, you don't just claim an I am, and then you don't do anything about it, because then it doesn't work. You claim the I am and work, continue to keep working to be it so that you can earn it because you earn it every day. If you claimed it because you were that in the past, it only existed back there. It doesn't exist here and it doesn't exist in the new place it's going. So that's a little bit of unpacking for that. And then real quick on the trusted voices and the actions that you take. So the trusted voices is who's your wise counsel? I recommend that individuals find grounding boards in their life, not sounding boards. Sounding boards tend to echo what you want to hear. A grounding board is the person who will tell you the ugly, the messy, will make sure that you don't wallow in all of your own wonderfulness, and they will tell you the truth. And that's a grounding board. And you need people like that, and you need them to have a variety of skills. So you don't just choose five people who are in finance and five people in in legal and what you need to spread out individuals based on their acumen, based on their experiences in life, young people, of people who are older, more mature. I mean, you want a combination of those trusted voices that you can go to and ask for information. Guess what? If you're practicing that, you're practicing being teachable. If you're listening to the voices of others and then the behaviors, that's, and that's all your actions. And your actions all come from the values, the beliefs, your attitudes, now your behaviors. So all of that is a concept of influence thinking. Hold on a second. I got that was a lot of information. I know, really. <laughs> this is a master class in forty-five minutes. In 45 I mean, minutes. oh man, man, that was a lot. You know, my my, you know, I, I try to retain a lot of stuff, but um, I was dotting down times, right? <laughs> so I know what to go back to. So, um, man, this is it's a lot of information, man. I just want to say thank you so much. It's it's been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Um, I, I really, uh, do you have the book right there? Can we just take a look real quick? Oh, yeah, sure. Let's just get yeah. that up. Wait, it was just right here. Look at that. Yes, the whole time. The whole time. Wonderful. Please pick it up when you get a chance. Um, I started reading and so far I, I'm enjoying it. So I'll, I'll let you guys know uh, once it's done, but I'm pretty sure it's going to add value to you. So I suggest you pick it up as well too. And you're gonna uh, love, you'll love Fanny Rules when it comes out because it has more of the stories and the background pieces and uh, you get an opportunity to to understand the struggles. I, I was from a very poor. So this is the way I want to leave this. I was mm-hmm. from a very poor family in West Virginia, hardly had two nickels to rub anything together. And so 
the wisdom that my mom imparted to me gave me the opportunity. She said, I don't really care what you want to be in life. And she says, be the best that you can be. And she says, learn everything you can about what it is you want to do. And if I had been stuck in my past, I would never have had a victory of being where I am today. I would never have pursued my higher education degree. I worked for it all myself. I had, I worked, I paid for all of it. Don't begrudge my parents at all. My parents did the very best that they possibly could. They provided. My mom gave me and dad gave me more wealth in the love and the affection than I could have gotten from the financial. But they, they helped me see that I could be what I wanted to be, that it was about me claiming my I am. And I am was making a difference in the world. It wasn't being a doctor. It wasn't being some notable person. It was about how can I help someone else? It was just always been, how do I teach? How do I train? How do I help someone achieve what they want to do? Because I've always found in my life that if I help someone else get what they want, I always get taken care of, but I don't do it to be taken care of. It just happens. So right. I'm like, yeah, good. Let's go for it. So, yeah, I, I, I like that concept. Uh, yeah. You know, um, you retain a lot of information from your mother. I do. You know, over the years, right? Do you keep a note? Like, how do you? Well, I wrote the book, so I got all the notes now. <laughs> <laughs> so I can to the book. The book. The book has all the notes now. Yeah. So most of the yeah. most of the stuff is in there. So it's it's pretty good. <laughs> How did you retain all that information? Is this something that was like constantly? I, I know it has to be embedded, but it's embedded and it's it's, it's constantly reinforced all the time. Oh, absolutely reinforced. Okay. So these these uh, lessons were not one and dones. Mom didn't have a lesson with me. Like she would remind me about my character. So when I chose to do what Billy did down the street and I used Billy as an excuse for why it was okay for me to do it. Oh, mama, she was so quick to be able to remind me. She says, now, was that a good character choice? She said, you can't use Billy as a circumstance. She goes, was that a character choice? Did you do that on your own? Did somebody force you to do that? You know, so those were the kind of lessons that, uh, you know, that that really and my dad I had a great relationship with my mom and my dad. But there's a reason why in the book sort of explains a little bit of my connection with my mom. Uh, my mom was the caregiver and nurturer. My dad was the protector and provider. And those were the, the uh, roles that they chose to play. They weren't inflicted on them. They chose to play those roles and spent 65 years together, um, you know, uh, sharing those those uh, roles before they passed away. And so. This is just an opportunity. And my brother, he was so funny when I was telling him about it, writing the book for about mom. And he goes, don't leave dad out. <laughs> I said, okay, I won't. So dad's kind of, he's in there just uh, in there just a few times um, because uh, mom was the one who really spent the most time with me. And so there's one of the chapters in the, uh, in the book, it's called uh, Step Ladder, Space Pants and Honking Horns. And so the Space Pants story is the one that's dedicated to my dad. I like that. You know, uh, thank you for inviting me into your space and learning as much as I could. <laughs> oh my God, thank uh, you for inviting me. Yeah, and, and when the book comes out on Fanny, I'm definitely going to get it because uh, I want to, I, I really want to digest it and really sit in my subconscious so that way I can just regurgitate it like you can because it just comes out so naturally. And I think when you have some certain principles that's embedded in you, yeah, you have like a, a, a navigation you have you know something that's going to navigate you through through life and I, I think that's valuable and we need we need more of that to instill more 
a lot of these positive things into our subconscious where it just spills out, then we know like, all right, if I'm going to say it, I got to practice it. I just can't say it without putting it that practice to use, right? Exactly. So thank you so much, uh, Dr. Hall, man. It's been a pleasure and I appreciate it from the bottom of my heart sincerely. And, um, and where can they reach you? Well, the easiest way to reach me is drtroyhall.com, drtroyhall.com. They can also reach me at cohesionculturecamp.com. And when they go there, there'll be a, con a contact page and then they can uh, send me information and then I'll call them back or respond to them by email, depending upon their pref preference. And we'll get connected. I'm in social media and in social media, it's real easy. It's Dr. Troy Hall and social media. So I try to make it easy for people to find me. <laughs> well, you got an easy last name. That's, That's right. Yeah. All right, Dr. Hall, thank you so much. Everyone out there, thank you so much. Please uh, go check out Dr. Hall and um, his IG page and his website. And thank you guys for tuning in once again. Uh, it starts now. Whatever you do, just put in the work and um, do some kind of iteration as you go along. And eventually it'll get better and better. So please. Good night, everyone. <laughs>